again. Good morning. My name is Ed, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we're uh, in the middle of a series where we're working our way through the book of Exodus. And we are still in Exodus 1. We only started this two weeks ago. So we'll be looking at Exodus 1, beginning in verse 8, and we'll go through verse 22. And I'm going to ask, if you would, let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. Exodus chapter 1, 8 through 22. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Remember that. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in bricks and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields, all kinds of harsh labor. The Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. King of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on delivery stool, if you see the baby as a boy, kill him. This is ethnic genocide. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, they feared God and, and did, did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do, but they let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, hey, why have you done it? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, look, these Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous. They give birth before the midwives even arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born must be thrown into the Nile, but let every girl live. You may be seated. So I thank you for your patience. Uh, last week I was not here. Um, I was at home suffering with a stomach bug, and I want you to know there were at least three times where I was laying on my bathroom floor begging for God to take my life. It was awful. Uh, some of you have had stomach bugs like that. Some of you have had this one that's going around right now. You know what I'm aware of this morning because of a couple of things that have happened this week, phone calls and uh, conversations I've had with some of you and with some of you. I'm aware we get into those spots, don't we? And sometimes it's far more devastating than a stomach bug. Sometimes you're lying in a hospital bed, blind, and you've lost 100 pounds, and you don't know what's wrong. Sometimes you go see the doctor and he says a word like cancer. Sometimes you get news about your parent or your child and about your finances and you have a very difficult conversation about your marriage all at the same time. So what do we make of these kind of circumstances? How do we process this kind of stuff? And I'm convinced that answering that question is one of the reasons that Moses wrote the book of Exodus. So welcome to our series of conversations that we've called Rescues. This is an exploration of the Old Testament book of Exodus. Now Exodus is volume two of the books of Moses. Volume one is Genesis. We know it's volume two of the books of Moses partly because the first word of the book of Exodus is not translated in the NIV, it's and. 
So Moses doesn't explicitly tell us why he wrote the book, but the way it's used later by the prophets and by the Psalms and by the later authors of the New Testament, it lets us know that God's Spirit had our question in mind. How do we deal with the most difficult passages in our lives? How do we process them? Repeatedly, the later authors all look to the time of Exodus for lessons about faith, especially about how to maintain our faith in the most difficult circumstances. So today... We're going to look at a part of God's answer to how we should process difficult circumstances because I know that some of you are living there right now. And if you're not, you know as well as I do, you will be. And God offers an answer, by the way. Today we're going to focus on one word, a one-word answer to that question. I believe it's a critical first step in responding to our, our difficulty without doing damage. Now, this, is, this isn't a Moses word, by the way. This, in fact, it's a pretty trendy uh, counseling and consulting word, but it's a word that Moses would agree with. And it's an affirmation of the spirit of the book of Exodus and the way that it's used by the uh, later Old Testament and New Testament authors. All right, it'll be helpful if we think of today as a story in three acts. Act one, we'll call Building a Life in Palestine, and we'll do some review Act 2 we'll call Making Our Way to Egypt. Again, we'll do some review. And both Acts 1 and 2 will be background. And then Act 3 we'll call The Difficulty. All right, you ready? Act 1, let's do a quick survey. Now, Genesis tells the story of Abraham, a man who was called by God to leave the comfort of his home and family at a time in history when people didn't do that. There were, of course, people who would travel for trade purposes, and there were nomads who spent their lives traveling, but nomads traveled with their whole clan. For someone to leave permanently their home and their family, this was a time when that, when that did not happen among settled peoples. And this map shows Abraham's trek. He goes from Ur of the Chaldees, and you see that sort of at the bottom left-hand side, I mean right-hand side, it's on the Euphrates River. He travels up, you know, the typical trade route, and he goes all the way over to the area below Damascus, Shechem, Beersheba, into what is now the Promised Land, and I want you to do something for me if you would. I want you, if you're able, I want you to stand up and move a half a step to your right. And as you do so, stand up, move a half a step to your right, move a half a step to your right. This is you in Ur of the Chaldees. So you are, you are now uh, east of the promised land. And this is what God told Abraham in Genesis 2 and 3. Mike, bring that slide up if you would. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless people who bless you. But look uh, at the top. Go from your country, your people, your father's household. I'm going to show you where Abraham leaves. He doesn't know where he's going. So you are right now, you're Ur of the Chaldees, and you're leaving. Now I want you to sit back down in the middle of your chair. This is you and what is modern-day Israel. So go back to the map. Mike, you're over there now in the land along the Great Sea or the Mediterranean Sea, and this is the promised land. And as part of God's further communication to Abraham, he promised Abraham that he would have many descendants. Throw those scriptures up real quick if you would, Mike. He's just reiterating, I'm going to knock you out with the number of people that will come from you. And then late in his life, Abraham's wife gave birth to a son and they named him Isaac. And all of the hopes of God's promise and all of the responsibility of God's promise now pass on to Isaac and they're pinned to Isaac. And God consequently reiterates his promise to Isaac. Pull that scripture up if you would, Mike. Same thing. Isaac, you're going to be great 
and I'm going to make a great people out of you. Then in turn, Isaac and his wife Rachel had a son, and they gave him the name Jacob, and all of the promises of God were passed on to Jacob. And to assure the integrity of this, God said the same thing to Jacob. Pull that scripture up if you would, Mike. Your descendants are going to be like the dust of the earth. This is why God is sometimes called, by the way, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So check out this verse again, if you would. There's something really interesting there, isn't there? It says, all peoples. No, we're back, we're back to the, the Genesis 28 one, Mike. Don't go to the next one yet. Yeah. All peoples. God had also said that to Abraham. It seems like from the very beginning that, the, that God's promise was meant for everyone. And that's what ultimately springs out in Jesus. All right, back to Act 1, building a life in Palestine. So at a later point in his life, Jacob wrestled with God, have no idea what that exactly means. It's a little bit bizarre, but out of that experience, God gave Jacob the nickname Israel, which means one who wrestles with God. And I want you to see the account of this incident. Now go to the 35, yeah. So this is where he wrestles with God. He's named Israel. You know what's significant about that? Sorry for bouncing back and forth with all these verses, but we need to have this in mind because this is the backdrop of the book of Exodus. So then over time, Jacob has 12 sons, and they become known as the sons of Israel or the Israelites. That's where that terminology comes from. And these 12 sons become the heads of what will become the 12 tribes of Israel. There you have it, the 12 tribes of Israel. And this same, virtually this same list is repeated at the very beginning of the book of Exodus when it lists, again, the 12 tribes. So they've made their way into the promised land. That brings us to Acts 2, which we're going to call making our way to Egypt. Now, some of you may know the story of Jacob's famous son, Joseph. This is also recorded in the book of Genesis. His story was produced as a Broadway play a number of years ago called Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. So Joseph was something of an outcast among his brothers, either because of their jealousy or because of Joseph's arrogance or both. The family relationships degraded to the degree that the brothers eventually sold him off into slavery without their father's knowledge, and you thought your children weren't getting along. Then they lied to their father and told them that Joseph had been killed. All right, boys and girls, if you grow up one day and you, you sell your, your uh, sister into Moabite slavery, at least tell your parents the truth about it. Well, pretty soon, Joseph was resold and resold, and eventually he became the household slave of one of the wealthiest citizens in the, in the nation of Egypt. And then through a remarkable set of circumstances, and I'm leaving out a bunch of super interesting detail, uh, uh, Joseph rose to prominence in the Egyptian national government. In fact, he ended up in a position kind of similar to what would be vice president for us, if you will. And this meant he was put in charge of preparing all of Egypt for an impending famine. So the famine hit, and when it hit, a huge part of the world was suffering, apparently starving, except for Egypt. And as it turned out, the rest of Joseph's family, who were still living in Palestine, remember, heard about the good fortune of Egypt, and they made their way to Egypt in search of food. They had no idea that their brother Joseph, the one they sold into slave, P.S., was the one literally in charge of the entire Egyptian supply. Eventually, there was this epic reunion and a profound reconnection and reconciliation. And thus, the sons of Israel ended up in Egypt. So now I want you, if you would, to stand and take a half a step to your left. Stand, take a half a step to your left. This is you in Egypt. Just make note of that because we're going to sit back down, but you're still in Egypt. 
And if you're able, I want you to sit back down and just to remind you that you're in Egypt, I want you to, I want you to half cheek it if you can. If that's too uncomfortable, don't do it. But sit down and be a little bit to your left if you can. Here's the thing. Because of Joseph's influence, the family became quite prominent in Egypt. Don't forget that. The family became quite prominent in Egypt. According to Genesis chapter 50, verse 7, when Jacob, the father, died, Joseph went to bury him. And look at this. He was accompanied by the dignitaries of his court and the dignitaries of Egypt. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him. This means at the end of Act 2, the family is well-established and enjoying a life of prominence in Egypt. And then we turn the page to Act 3. This brings us to Act 3, which we'll call the difficulty. The difficulty is introduced somewhat ominously in verse 8 of the passage that we read at the very beginning today. It says, then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. And if we were making a movie of this, and many have, we would have some music like dun-dun-dun. We'll say more about these pharaohs and the history behind that next week, who might have been in power at the time. But one of the prevailing theories suggested a pharaoh named Ahmos was this new king. He had overthrown previous rulers who were known as the Hyksos dynasty. He had established what's called the 18th dynasty in Egypt. Ahmos ruled from about 1550 BC to about 1525 BC. There'll be a test at the end of this whole series. And the suggestion that he was the new king who did not know Joseph makes some sense. Again, according to verse 8, he did not know Joseph. One commentary suggests that this was not, that the language here, the Hebrew here, indicates that this was not a matter of inadequate information. It's not that, that Ahmose hadn't been briefed by his, his officials about Joseph. No, it's just that Pharaoh Ahmose refused to acknowledge the tremendous, I'm quoting from a commentary, refused to acknowledge the tremendous benefits Joseph had been instrumental in bringing to Egypt, end quote. And think about it. If, if what Joseph had done had benefited a previous administration, well, you can, you can see why the new administration comes in, overthrows them, He's not interested in recognizing Joseph and his great benefits. The Israelites have become too numerous for us, the new king said, according to verse 9. Can you imagine anti-immigrant sentiment? Can you even imagine? Like many rulers before him since and since, Pharaoh played the race card. Quote, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, end quote. Now look. There were real threats to Egyptian security at the time, and some of those threats came from the Middle East. So we can understand how the Egyptians might have thought, okay, if Middle Eastern enemies march against Egypt, well, maybe the Israelites will feel more affinity for those Middle Easterners than they do for us, and, and they'll align themselves with the Middle Easterners, and we can't have that. Also, just consider the simple math of it. You don't want to be a minority in your own country you don't want to be overrun, so, quote, we need to do something about this. Except the Egyptians had several generations of evidence to the contrary. They knew these Israelites. Not to mention that one of the original Israelites had saved their stinking country. Still, ultimately, why pay for labor when you own the biggest sword? Just point it in the direction of somebody with a smaller sword and say, do the work for me for free. And in verses 11... 13 and 14, Moses goes out of his way to describe the difficulty. He piles up adjectives to describe the grimness of the situation. Take a look at this. Forced labor, ruthlessly, harsh labor, harsh labor, ruthlessly. 
Moses wants to be clear. Things were very, very difficult. Very difficult. Things were harsh. Things were grim. And then the final horror, the Pharaoh ordered cultural genocide. Kill all the Israelite sons. Look, this kind of prejudice is not hard for us to imagine. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Just listen to this quickly. Hitler's movement in Germany. The Khmer Rouge attempted extermination of Cambodians led by Pol Pot. 90% of Armenians killed by the Ottoman Empire. The Rwandan genocide in which it is estimated that perhaps 60% of Tutsis living in Rwanda and Burundi were killed by Hutus. Not to mention Rohingya, Darfur, Assyrian, and Bengali genocides, nor the killing of the Hutus, which Hutus claim led to the Rwandan crisis 20 years later, nor the Mayan genocide in Guatemala, nor the East Timor genocide in Indonesia. And that's only a partial list. And that's just the 20th century. If we go back a century early, we'll find, earlier, we'll find the same kind of horror in our own country. This is not hard for us to imagine. And that brings us back to our question. If you're on the dark side of these circumstances or circumstances like them, how do you process that? What are we to make of grim and difficult circumstances? How are we to think about them? What category do we even use? Listen, is it punishment? Is this just evidence of evil in the world? Is it random? Is it God's limitation? He hurts us. He hurts for us, but he can't do anything about it. By the way, often when we ask those big philosophical questions, there aren't answers. I'll say things occasionally here on Sunday morning like, you know, we don't have all the answers, but we have the answer. But there are answers to those questions. P.S. Is it punishment? Maybe. It could be punishment. It could be discipline. That's sometimes what happens. God uses that. Yes, bad things happen. Is it, is it, are there bad circumstances evidence of evil in the world? Yes. The world is off kilter. The Apostle Paul told us the world, creation, groans because of, it's off kilter because of us. Is it, are these things random? No, they are not random. The universe is not random. It's purposeful. It's meaningful. Are these things, does this represent God's limitations? No, not even God's self-limitations. God is always present, always capable, always moving. Even when we don't see it, you're working. Even when we don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. We sang that just a minute ago. But even if I'm right about all those answers, and I am, <laughs> even if I'm right, and even if you accept all those answers, that doesn't necessarily help. When difficult things happen, that doesn't necessarily help. How do we make sense of them spiritually and emotionally? How do we live in those answers? Let me repeat, I'm going to give a one-word answer, by the way, and then we'll go. This is not a Moses term. He didn't use this term, but Moses would appreciate this term because it is profoundly rich and theologically vital. Here it is. The first key step in processing our difficulties is to reframe them. This is how we begin to build hope. This is how we find our way back to faith. We reframe our difficulties. This is not the whole process, but this is the starting point. And it may be where some of you are today, or if you're giving advice to someone, it may be what you need to tell them and help them to do. 
We have to place our circumstances in the right context, often within a larger context. Let me illustrate this really quickly as I can. I want you to imagine a close-in snapshot, and let's say you see a young hand holding a knife, and there's something red on it, and you see a little piece of cloth right beside it, and it's red as well, and you think, oh no, that's a child's hand. He has stabbed another child. And then we back that frame up just a little bit, and you see that it's a, a boy and a girl, and they're standing next to one another, and the red on the, the cloth is really a part of a pattern. We back it up even further and you realize it's a birthday party. And it, it's, it's red dye. He's just cut his birthday cake. Often the picture we see is very misleading, especially if we're too close and we have too narrow a view. Oh my gosh, why am I sitting on my floor in my bathroom? God help, what are you doing? In the same way, we have to expand the frame around our difficulties. Don't miss this. Please listen. Hasn't the new Pharaoh turned against us? Aren't our lives impossibly difficult? Yes. But God continues to multiply us. Well, hasn't that Pharaoh told her midwives to kill our boys? Yes. But the midwives, acting with incredible bravery, are disobeying Pharaoh. Won't Pharaoh kill those midwives? Yes. But somehow he hasn't figured it out. And God's even blessed them with families. Aren't we being beaten and mistreated? Yes. But God is building us into a nation. We, are, we, are, we have a shared suffering now. He's tying our hearts together in a way that they never were before. And God is raising up a liberator. Plus... God is building within us a dissatisfaction with Egypt, which was never meant to be our home. The first key step in processing our difficulty is to reframe them. And part of the reason the book of Exodus was constructed was so that future generations could use this history as a sermon. During their darkest hours, God was moving Behind the scenes, he was building a liberator, and he's made one for us. And he was establishing exactly the right climate for change. Through their difficulty, God was bringing them home. Egypt was never supposed to be their home. We don't ever change until the discomfort of changing is less than the discomfort of staying the same. When difficulty strikes, start with the work of reframing it. Satan always wants to crop the photo. He wants to keep you focused on the incredible pain of this small spot that you're in right now. But in the larger frame, we find God still at work, still moving on our behalf. Okay, we need to watch some announcements before we leave. Look, I was going to uh, lead us in a hymn this morning, an old hymn, one of my favorite old hymns. I'm not going to do that, but I'm, I'm going to go through the lyrics because the words are unbelievable. And I want you to see this. Beginning with the second verse, I want you to say them with me. Uh, and this will be our closing prayer. Mike, bring up that first verse. And if you would, if you're able, would you stand with me? The hymn is called, My God, I Thank Thee. It goes like this. My God, I thank Thee who has made the earth so bright, so full of splendor and of joy. Beauty and light, so many glorious things are here, noble and right. Second verse, now read this with me. I thank thee too that thou hast made joy to abound. So many gentle thoughts and deeds circling us round, that in the darkest spot of earth some love is found. I thank thee more that all our joy is touched with pain, 
that shadows fall on brightest hours, that thorns remain, so that it's bliss and not our chain. For thou who knowest, Lord, how soon our weak heart clings, hast given us joys tender and true, yet all with wings, so that we see gleaming on high diviner things. I thank thee, Lord, that thou hast kept the best in store. We have enough, yet not too much, to long for more, a yearning for a deeper peace not known before. I thank thee, Lord, that here our souls, though amply blessed, can never find, although they seek, a perfect rest, nor ever shall. Father, this morning for some of us, in the midst of challenge and difficulty, we look to you, Lord, to help us reframe that difficulty and recognize that even when we don't see it, you're moving. And to help us recognize, Lord, that you are nurturing within us a desire and a longing for what is most and truly satisfying for us, our home. Oh Lord, I pray for some of us who will be counseling those in difficulty, that you will train us not just to hold hands and say, oh, I'm so sorry, but Lord, you'll train us to be people who can help others reframe their circumstances with faith and with vision. Not false hope, Lord, true hope. The real thing, the real picture on a larger scale. Finally, we're so thankful for Jesus who is our liberator. We welcome him this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said. Amen.